Hi everyone, this is episode 54 of the Get In My Garden podcast. I'm Aaron Moskowitz, and today I chat with Amanda Skidmore, Integrated Pest Management Specialist from the New Mexico State University Extension Office south of Albuquerque. She co-organized the first symposium of hemp and entomology. Amanda shares her knowledge about integrated pest management and the career opportunities that exist in biology by specializing in entomology. We chat about the research frontier in mosquito genetics and non-GMO controlled release of insects to manage problem populations. She introduces us to what land-grant universities are and how to utilize this amazing resource if you're a farmer or gardener looking for localized knowledge. The vast scope of these programs and their hyper-localized research was unknown to me until recently. In the second half, Amanda talks about the details of the Farm Bill as it pertains to hemp production and how the programs will operate within the states. Then she gives an overview of the different modes of action of pesticides and why they are used and what to do when you are experiencing a potential pest problem. Follow the show at Get In My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discuss here and to learn about upcoming episodes. Visit GetInMyGarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will include supplemental and special content or freebies, as well as articles and other interesting things I share with my close friends. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review to support the show. Tell us about yourself and how you ended up in New Mexico. And Yeah, sure. So you were, I met you at the Xerces Society. Yeah, my background, I am classically trained as an entomologist and that kind of happened completely by accident. And I think kind of how I got into entomology is a funny story. I was always like science inclined, but in high school, I decided I would take an art class. And I know that I'm not a good artist, but um, while I was taking art classes, one of the teachers comes up to me and in front of like a whole class, like when I was 16, she's like, Amanda, we really need to find something better for you to do. She, she was very like honest that Art was not going to be my future, which I also like realized I was just doing this for fun. And yeah, I'm not a great artist. Give me some crayons and we're good to go. But <laughs> So from there, she's like, hey, my husband runs a science lab for the University of Kentucky. Would you be interested in maybe going and doing some internship with him this summer? There's like a program for high schoolers and see if you like doing that better than you are at art. And I was like, okay, sure, that sounds fun. Well, she didn't tell me that her husband worked on mosquitoes. So when I showed up at the lab, I found out that it was to work in a lab that was a medical veterinary entomology lab. And the professor who, he runs the lab, he's really awesome. His name is Stephen Dobson. He still has a lab at UK. I met with him and he kind of explained to me what entomology was, how I might be able to help and shadow people in the lab over the summer. So he introduced me to his lab and I came in two or three times a week throughout the summer just to get some science hands-on experience doing experiments and stuff. And I found out that I really liked it. And when all of the other undergraduate students went back to school in the fall, they needed extra help in the lab. And I was like, hey, guys, if you pay me a little bit, I'll come in and help do some of those job duties. And that's kind of like how it all got started. Um, And I stayed working in that lab for almost 
six years, I think. Wow. By the time I graduated, because it was two years in high school and then all the way through undergrad. Amazing. So at that point, you didn't know that you would end up there at school. It was just kind of an adventure. Yeah, it totally was. It was it was just experience. It was learning about natural sciences. When I was four, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I knew early on science was, was what I was interested in, but I didn't know how to get into it or how to even get started. So failing out of art class helped open up doors for finding out that science is cool. Do you know who Suzanne Wainwright is? Oh, I've heard that name. She calls herself the bug lady and she does a lot of yes, work with people yes, with yes, commercial yes. greenhouses and things. But she uh, said that there's a huge opportunity for entomologists right now. Yep. Can you talk to uh, people about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the cool things about entomology, and this is, I've I've had the opportunity over my career to work with a lot of different high schoolers and undergrads. And I think it's really, really important to talk to students and talk to K through 12 and get them interested in science. But one of the cool things, especially when you're talking to undergrads who aren't certain how to major, entomologists like to call ourselves biologists with jobs Uh um, (laughs) because it kind of sets you apart from just having a normal biology degree where you have a specialty area that you can use when you're applying for internships or you're applying for jobs outside of just having a general biology degree, but you're still taking all of those same types of classes that a biologist would take. You're just maybe taking a few extra ones in a specialty area that will kind of help set you apart when you're applying for grad school or when you're applying for a job later. Makes sense. And I know that business of bugs is growing. There's a lot of, (laughs) I mean, it's kind of, we're moving towards a lot of controlled environment agriculture. Is that right? Is some of your work involved in greenhouses? Um, So I have done some work in greenhouses and there's a lot of different things that are going on there. There's a huge industry for indoor agriculture pests. There's a huge industry for high tunnels and some really cool work that's being done with those. And then, of course, there's a lot of stuff in the field. One of the things I like to do when I talk with kids or talk with people about entomology and the importance and value of understanding arthropods is to ask them to think of like what career they want to have or like what areas of their lives that they're involved in and then how that relates to entomology. Hmm. So I usually call it like stumping the entomologist. So like kids will come up and be like, well, how can I be an airplane pilot and still be an entomologist or how do, how do insects impact that career? And you can talk about how there's people that inspect airplanes before they go to different parts of the country or different parts of the world to see if there might be bugs coming in mm-hmm. or out on the planes or people who do different types of spray treatments using airplanes or even just having to deal with managing people and pests that might be on your airplane and pest management. So there's all sorts of different applications for entomology. So cool. Well, the more I learn about it, it's like one of the one of a few subjects that is so unlimited, it seems like, because it kind of intersects with like research, biology, and also technology. Because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff right now about gene splicing and all that. So It's so cool. There's so many different types of applications for it that you could just take a deep dive into one or the other and just go on forever trying to figure out. That's awesome. Yeah. And what do you think about all what's going on with, I've heard some stuff about the mosquitoes. So they 
kind of changed the DNA of a certain mosquito that was supposed to uh, fix a problem. I think it was in Brazil. And now they're saying it's backfiring. <laughs> what do you feel about that? Um, well, I have to be honest and say that I've not followed up with that one as much. So I kind of stepped out of the mosquito world and came into the agriculture world during undergrad. And I can get back into undergrad and grad school background because mm-hmm. I think we kind of yeah. jumped over that a little bit. But yeah, there's actually quite a few different programs involving mosquitoes and genetics. And just from like a basic perspective, there are different ways that um, researchers are doing genetic modification and that whole side of the science. But then there's also the concept of like doing a sterilized release for insects that means that you're not necessarily manipulating genes or RNAi or any of the complicated stuff. But what you're doing is you're releasing a insect or a mosquito that isn't compatible when it mates and doesn't produce viable offspring. Gotcha. So there's a couple different programs around the world that are working on different angles of this. And there's pros and cons to each Mm -hmm. one, I think. But as for the ones in Brazil, I haven't focused on that. Gotcha. Well, you work with farmers. Can you talk about the uh, New Mexico State University and I mean, it seems to me, since I wasn't really involved in agriculture at all before I came to New Mexico, maybe this exists in many places, but it seems like New Mexico is a very, very good place for small farmers. And the university has some amazing programs going on. Yeah. So I am very, very new to the university. I just started uh, two weeks ago today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So I am also getting familiar with all of the different programs. And there are quite a few um, really cool opportunities for small farmers, for folks that are interested in field crops. One of the cool things, and I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast before, but the concept or the idea behind a land-grant university? No, we haven't actually. I mean, the importance of that. So land-grant universities and You could do probably an entire episode on it and all the different government regulations that came in are the different acts of Congress that occurred to create land-grant universities. But each state was granted money and land by the government for research and education of the, the people. So most of this is focusing on schools that teach practical things around agriculture, science, engineering, things that are important to people for agriculture production. The land grants in New Mexico is New Mexico State University. And so one of the main goals is to educate farmers and producers. So the county extension that um, there's extension in each or an extension office in each county. They run different types of programs. So where we met the different or the the pollinator correct yeah event that we met at. Those types of events happen all across the state and you can just look up information about your county and find out what cooperative extension is doing and they cover everything from like home economic type things from like canning and how to use the products in your garden all the way through, hey, I have a pest problem, you know, can somebody come help me look at that? That's awesome. And that's where you come in. Which is, yeah, which is a really cool service. So that is kind of where I come in. Um, I was hired to be the integrated pest management specialist for urban and small farming. So 
that means that as a specialist for the state, the way that we work is we communicate with the general public, but ideally we work with the agents to help organize trainings, to come and help educate the agents so that they can go out and help their constituents in their county, but also we're able to communicate with the scientists back on campus and see what they're doing and what kind of research projects they have. So it's kind of a really cool in-between, really exciting job. I'm I'm super excited to be here. Well, I think that a lot of people, when they start up with whatever their adventure in farming will be, maybe it's even just continuing a family farm. They're probably going to run into pests certain years. And I know here, yes. <laughs> I mean, some years, I guess it depends on so many factors. It could be completely overwhelming. So what are some of the things that people do? Yeah. So one of the first things when we talk about IPM, so IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management. And it's the idea of coming up with solutions to pest problems in a way that is kind of holistic and thinking about it from a systems perspective. So one of the first steps in trying to consider like, how would I set up a a crop or how would I plant my garden even would be to look into the types of things you want to plant and what types of pests you might encounter. So there's a lot of different information, be it from books, be it from online. One of the cool resources that New Mexico State University has as the land-grant university. They have a lot of different fact sheets that if you want to know about a specific pest or how a specific crop is grown, you can see if they have a fact sheet available for that. And that's something that you can find online or if you talk to like a county agent that they can help get you set up with. So cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool, the different resources we have. And the great part about it being a land grant, again, is that all of the material that's coming from NMSU is designed for people in New Mexico. Yeah. But if you're not in New Mexico and you're in a different state, each state has their own cooperative extension that you should be able to to find that information. That's amazing. I just had no idea that it was so yeah. it was so widespread cuz I know that we I mean the term land grant in New Mexico goes back to the Spanish. So I guess that's kind of what I linked it with. It happened through acts in Congress that resulted in land being donated to universities in each state that were given this mission or this charge to help the people in that state. Cool. So it's it's really cool and even Let's see, the first concept or the first time that this grant was was done was in the 18 or like mid 1800s. So it was before some of the states were even states. So as the states like were added into the United States, they were each given this mission to help. Seems like in New Mexico, there's a kind of a focus. And I don't know if this is just because of the culture and what the farmers have wanted to do, but a very holistic, sustainable approach to it all. Yes. There's been a huge movement towards sustainability. And and one of the cool things about having the land-grant university is the, the added aspect. So a lot of universities have research and teaching programs, but land-grant universities have a special appointment to do extension work. And extension is the idea of communicating what's being done at the university to the general public. And it's also being able to take what the general public 
is seeing or experiencing or has an interest in and bring that back to the university and say, hey, we're having an issue with this pest in this area. Can we evaluate to see whether or not this is something that should be looked at closer? Or, hey, we're seeing this huge outbreak. This is something really important for us to focus on. So Extension provides a lot of resources and it's something that is unique and is one of the missions of a land-grant institution. It's really cool. It sounds like a good exchange going both directions. Yes, that's that's the idea, is that it's a bridge between the the public and the university so that everybody can talk. It helps to get conversations started and make things that might not have been possible before able to happen. Because I've, I've worked with some different groups that wouldn't be comfortable having a government official come out to their property, but by being able to work with them and even just open up a conversation about, hey, you know, we're not trying to like be big brother and check up on you. We would just like to, you know, work with you to help solve some of your pest problems that folks are way more receptive to that. And it's cool. For sure. I kind of, when you were saying that, was thinking of some of the hemp growers and maybe there's some remnant fear around that. So uh, is that a big, I know you just got to New Mexico, but I assume (laughs) that's probably going to be a component of what you're doing too. I have been interested in hemp for a long time. I helped to get one of the first science groups together. Um, There's a national society called the Entomology Society of America that does some really cool stuff. But we have a meeting every year where all the entomologists get together and just talk bugs and the things that are going on in entomology. And 2000. 16, me and a former graduate student colleague of mine put together the first symposium on hemp and entomology just to try to get the hemp entomologists all talking together, which was awesome and has resulted in some really cool stuff. It's fun to add too that that meeting, the meeting that year was held in Denver. So it made it even more fun to be able to come and I'm talk to folks. It was, packed. it was it was absolutely packed and we had to jump through some interesting hoops. I know that we were checked on to make sure that we weren't bringing in people who didn't know what they were talking about. Interesting. Every person who talked in that conference had to have like a background check done. And that was just, or not like a full background check, but just, yeah, this person's actually a scientist and they know what they're talking about. And I think that that's Responsible they're afraid that it might have makes might a lot affect of sense. their economy probably. Well, it's, it's more so that they didn't want people to be talking about things that weren't related to hemp and entomology. It made more sense to make sure that, yes, we actually have scientists that are coming to talk about their research. So that was exciting and fun. And from that, we met people all across the country. We um, started a small working group between some of the hemp entomologists, and we've held a couple more meetings since then that have just helped to educate people in the entomology world about hemp, as well as get people connected so that they can start talking about what they're seeing in all of these different states. And as for hemp and growing and communication, it's really interesting because each state up until this year has kind of had their own way of creating programs for doing hemp research. So some states, you just have to fill out an application and you can plant whatever you want. Some states, you have to have a partnership with somebody at the land-grant university or somebody that's a researcher to design a project for hemp as kind of like a preliminary preliminary study. So the rules in each state are different and they're constantly changing. In this most recent farm bill, we were allowed 
national like nationwide starting in 2020 to grow hemp. So any state that didn't already have a program in place has the option up until 2020 to put a program in place and work with the USDA. Or if that state chooses not to, then the USDA will create its own program within that state to grow hemp. I see. So there is a lot of work happening with New Mexico and developing our own program before that happens. And it's something that is still coming to the forefront and is being developed and clarified. It's one of those topics that's really interesting as a researcher and as an extension person because it's difficult to make recommendations on a crop that's been illegal for over 100 years. And it's still got a lot of way to go before it becomes mainstream to talk about. Yes, there's a lot of very smart people, too, who have been involved with the medical cannabis field and then also or black market in some way, I guess. And so I think that there's been some research and they have there are some experts in there. It's gonna be very interesting to watch. And it's clarifying that hemp is not the other product. Hemp is its own plant and cultivar and can be used for a lot of things beyond just a medical well, use. People were talking about how it could potentially be used in cement that would be six times stronger mm-hmm. and it's capturing carbon. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So yeah, it's one of the things, even when you're talking about pest management for it, is talking about how the idea of what types of pest management we can recommend, because if you're growing hemp for say CBD, it's a completely different crop than if you were managing it as a forage or if you were managing it for fiber and you would need different management techniques for each one, depending on what that end product is, right? If you're using hemp that's going to be put into cement, then how you manage that or what type of say, if you used an insecticide you used on that, that end product isn't something that's going to be consumed. So then you could manage it completely different than if you were managing it for, say, like an animal Mm -hmm. feed. If you wanted to add it to an animal feed, you would have to be really careful and it would have to be labeled differently. So there's a lot of like bigger questions before before we get into some of the more specific stuff is like knowing which crop you you're aiming for. That's a great point. Yeah. And so, I mean, because it's and it's also a bioaccumulator. I've had people tell me that multiple times. Mm hmm. But yeah, hemp is going to be really interesting so long as people don't get burned out on it beforehand. Because it's such a different type of crop to grow and you need a lot of specialized equipment for it, there's a lot of people that are really interested in getting involved that have never even grown a plant in their life before. And so there's a lot of high-risk investment going in that if folks don't have the education behind what it is to even grow hemp, that there could be the potential to lose a lot of money, which is really sad and really frustrating from like an extension perspective where I want to make sure people are succeeding. But sometimes it has to be like, hold on, let's go back to the very beginning. Don't don't tell me you want to grow 200 acres of a crop when you've never oh grown God. anything before. Yeah, please, let's let's maybe start smaller and and work our way there. So it all comes back to an education too. Ideally, the first thing that you would, at least for me, is thinking about it from a research or a science perspective. If I type in hemp insect problem, I would like to see a page come up from my land grant institution that says, hey, here's how you can 
solve hemp insect problems versus just a random website where somebody's like, hey, I did this or I did that or I ordered this product off the internet. It's It's an interesting kind of comparison between, you know, the market economy and how a university functions. So I guess, like you said, there's a lot of money that goes into it and a lot of money will be lost, but maybe a lot lot of research can still be gained from that. But ultimately, uh, more thorough research (laughs) will happen through the university say it's a stink bug problem. If I search stink bug, I'll always put edu after it. Like if it's a, if it's a college website, it's the education. Yeah. So, and then a lot of times that will pop up information from universities and fact sheets from universities a lot faster than if I'm trying to slog through (laughs) just from like searching from stink bug. Mm But also the idea that the cooperative extension, like that's why they're there. So reaching out to the cooperative extension agent in your area or your county, um, depending on what state you're in, it would depend on whether or not you have an agent for each individual county or whether or not it's regional. It just depends on how the system's set up in your state. But reaching out to those folks to find out information about whatever the specific problem is, I think is a really good way to start when you've got a pest problem that you don't know how to handle. And do you think that most pest problems when you're in like a county, if someone is uh, finding that problem, that it's going to probably be in the whole area? Yeah, that that's one of the things. There are sometimes hot spots where like a, a certain pest or an outbreak will occur. But a lot of times what folks end up encountering is something that their neighbor is encountering or something that's in the region already. Mm-hmm. So. And it's also great too, by contacting like a county agent or something, there becomes a record of like, oh, this was seen here so that next year you could look back on it and say, oh, look, this is, we know that this particular pest comes out around the same time of year. So it it helps to provide information for when we want to give a recommendation for what to do or when we should expect to see pests or how to plan for a pest. I mean, even just this week, I was asked about a particular insect and was able to go into one of the New Mexico State University databases and find out, okay, this person was from this particular county and, oh, look, two years ago at this exact same week of the year, somebody also asked the same question. And I could compare a lot of times um, agents will take pictures of what's going on. So I can even go back to records from like 10 years ago and see pictures that people have uploaded of like, oh, here's this pest and then see what was recommended for it then and compare that to what's maybe being recommended for it now and see if they're similar, see what changes are going on, but also be able to provide somebody with a clear knowledge or information about how to handle that problem. Wow, that's really cool. People they <laughs> think they know what they have as a problem, but they have no idea until they look with a loop and sometimes yeah, even they can't exactly. 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 Well, see, that's one of the best parts about using or having a land-grant university and using cooperative extension service because for most states, having something identified, unless you're bringing things in all the time, like constantly, most states um, have it set up where you can submit a sample through county extension and it can go all the way through up to the specialists at the university to try to determine what that is. So a lot of the agents come to trainings on a yearly basis to learn about new pests that are coming out and how to manage them or to become familiar so that they can help 
a lot of people in their area with what the most common problems are. But say you come up with something that's a mystery insect or a mystery problem, or you're just not sure, there's ways that those can be taken to the agent. The agent can then pass that on up the chain so you can get to a researcher at the university. What kind of vulnerabilities exist like in the you know bug world? Are things really mutating? Are things you know evolving so that our crops are more at risk? Or is that just kind of sci-fi? Um, well, things are always changing. One of the things in pest management is the idea of resistance to certain types of chemicals. And that resistance usually happens over a period of time. So one of the ways that we talk about, and I don't want to just get stuck on talking about pesticides because this happens in other things too. But one of the things is when we recommend a producer or somebody who is planning to use um, some type of a chemical on their field. And there's some crops that we couldn't even be able to grow if we didn't have some of these resources. And not all of them are horrible. Mm -hmm. But is the idea that each one has a different type of it's called a mode of action. So it focuses on a different type of biology in the insect to help eliminate the problem. So you might have one that specifically focuses on the insect's neurology. So you might want to pick to use that insecticide. And then the next time you might want to focus on an insecticide that impacts the way that the insect's able to breathe or the way that it's able to disrupt and find its host plant. So if you're focusing on like an insect pest management, then the idea would be that you switch each one of these modes of action. And there's all different kinds of information we could talk about on that too. But you could target each one of these different things. And if you rotate which one you use, then the insects can't become resistant to it. So resistance is when say you you go out and use you spray something and it kills 90% of the insects that are there. And then you have this small population of insects that's still there that weren't killed by whatever it is that you sprayed. The next time, if you spray that exact same thing and you've given those insects time to have babies and repopulate and you've got your pest problem again, so that's why you're going to spray, then fewer of those that you've sprayed are going to be eliminated by that insecticide because you're building up a population that's resistant to that particular type of mode of action or that particular type of chemistry. So that's when it gets more and more complicated. I guess the question, the the whole organic or, you know, that's very kind of broad and what it even means. (laughs) So, I mean, organic farmers use pesticides too. Yes. And that's something that's super important to mention or, or talk about because there's a huge misconception that organic means I didn't spray anything on it. Right. And what the definitions for each one of these types of management is. If someone's even just having a garden with a problem, there's going to be, and there is a pest problem, they're going to f- find, I guess, OMRI products that are pesticides. How do they decide what to do? Right. So as thinking about it from a systems perspective, so my first thing is not to just be like, okay, here's a here's a chemical solution. It's to try to talk with somebody to see what their system looks like. Sadly, a lot of times people come to you when there is a problem, right? That's that's when the crisis is happening. That's when they really want help solving it. And a lot of times, yeah. And a lot of times the solution for that is some type of insecticide spray. So one of the things that my program hopes to educate people with is to look at 
okay, I'm planning my garden in March. What are some of the things that I can start planning for? And then break that down into different types of management. So there's different types of cultural controls people can use. They can make decisions about what time they plant something based on when an insect pest may or may not be present. They can choose maybe a a plant that is more resistant to insect damage. They can plant a variety of plants. They could use some type of a mechanical control, like a barrier that would prevent pests from even reaching their plants or their crop at the, the beginning. That would mean you wouldn't have to spray. They could use something as simple as crop rotation or a type of tillage. There's different types of biological controls where people can plant different types of flowers that might attract in a beneficial insect that could help Mm -hmm. with any potential pests. There's the idea of releasing beneficials or providing habitat for beneficial insects and pollinators. And so all of these things would be things that somebody could start putting together when they're thinking about their garden that would help to reduce the impact that the pests might have or the presence of pests. Because the goal is not to completely eliminate every single pest, but to reduce the number of pests so that they no longer become a problem. So when we're talking to a producer, the goal is to reduce the number of pests to the point or to keep the population below the point that has an economic impact. Many, many pests have a threshold level that has been researched and determined so that when you talk to someone, you can say, okay, this is, when you see this number of pests in your field, this is when you've hit that economic threshold of when a treatment needs to be applied. Interesting. Yeah. We're here for the, the farmers. So that's, that's what our goal is, is to connect with people. The soil food web, I don't know if that's something that's very niche. Like, what if there's a problem that's something that's not visible? Like nematode or something yeah so that's one of the things too not only and i I mean i'm just going to keep hitting back on cooperative extension but one of the things that is great is that if you're having a problem so say it's something small you can take it into like a an extension office but you can also call a local agent and ask them to come out and look to see what the problem might be to try to help assess what that is because a lot of times if you can't see it, it's really hard to diagnose. So we have different tools where if the agent comes out, they can take either a soil sample that can be then sent to the university um, labs for testing. They can take different parts of the plant and even send whole plants to the diagnostic lab that's on campus. Amazing. To yeah, to be looked at and try to help determine what those problems are. And sometimes if that, you know, if the one person doesn't know, because everybody can't be a specialist in everything, that's one of the challenging parts, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody might come out and they might not know, but because they have all of those resources at hand, they can connect people with who might know, right? My specialty area isn't soil science, but if I come across it, I know who at the university I can contact and say, hey, could you take a look at this and what's your recommendation or what's this mystery and how do we... That's awesome. How do we solve it? It's a really cool system and way that it's set up. One other question, last, last, last question is (laughs) like people, someone who's farming mushrooms, those are not, that's like a controlled environment system. Right. Is that uh, inside the realm of the community centers or, I mean, do you have people working on that? Farming 
mushrooms is definitely something that falls underneath the realm of agriculture. Knowing what each person specifically is working on at the university can be difficult because a lot of times for specialty crops in particular, it's hard to dedicate a lot of time to just one project unless there's a lot of people asking for that one thing. So is it possible that there's folks that are working on a particular specialty crop? Yeah, for sure. There's, there's so many cool projects that are happening all over the state with all sorts of different crops that people are running trials on to see if it would be viable to use here as a potential crop. It's another subject, like entomology, very, very interesting to study them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Love talking about this kind of stuff. Thank you so so much. I'm excited that you moved here and excited to follow up with you and hear about more of what you're working on. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. All right. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the interview. My goal is that you are inspired to continue your learning, your hobbies, projects, and businesses related to natural farming, hydro and aquaponics, bees and pollinator insects, fungi and mycology, soil and the soil food web, microbes, plants, and however you are involved in entertaining yourself in a way that benefits the earth and our future. Be an ambassador for the fungi and the bees. Follow the show at Get In My Garden on Instagram to see pictures of what we discuss here and to learn about upcoming episodes. Visit GetInMyGarden.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, which will include supplemental and special content or freebies, as well as articles and other interesting things I share with my close friends. Subscribe to the Get In My Garden podcast wherever you listen from and leave a positive review to support the show. Next week, we will have an interview about high CBD cannabis growing and breeding.